out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for a very long time. Anyway, as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the psychedelic space rock band. It is the one and only Here and Now, because I spoke to Keith Bailey, the bassist. Keith the Missile, I think he calls himself, to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years, and Keith's going to tell us what it is for him, and much, much more. Anyway, sit back, relax, enjoy. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I was born in the 50s, and... Um, you know, I consider myself so lucky because by the time I hit sort of 12, it was the Beatles, then the Stones, then the Who, the Small Fated, Kinks, you know, incredible bands. And it just seemed like every day, you know, there was something absolutely amazing. But I suppose the the one who really sort of woke me up and made me want to... Um, play psychedelic music was Jimi Hendrix. Right, yes. So did you manage to get to see Mr Hendrix live? That's one of the big regrets of my life. No, I never did. Yeah, these things do happen. Where were you brought up? Where was I brought up? Yes. Ah, well, my father was with um, GCHQ, so he was sort of all over the world. So I wasn't so much brought up as dragged up. Yeah. And um, I spent, uh, until I was 17, I was I was at a boarding school. Yeah. While he sort of galloped around the world. But that was in, in Winchester. And what was that experience like? Did that have, has, has that had a marked you know, impression on your life? <laughs> it took me years to unwind it. <laughs> it was hideous. It was founded in 1601, and I don't think they changed the rules since. Yes, no, I know. My, I never did. I went to a, a strange country sort of modern school, which just had a few CSEs, and then you just left school at 16 with no sort of aspirations other than work in a chicken factory or, you know, such like. It wasn't a great one. So with the 60s, as that sort of developed, were you kind of aware of that kind of, because you mentioned those bands, but, you know, like it was kind of around 63 that things really developed with or started to take off with the early Beatles, and then there was the Summer of Love in 67, but then, you know, as with every scene, it kind of gets a bit murky and towards the end, you know, Brian Jones had died. You know, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison all died. Did you sort of at that stage find it quite disappointing, not disappointing, but was it quite a weird moment when when the 60s came to an end and you were just at that age where you thought, this is brilliant and, oh, my God, everyone's just died? <laughs> well, you know, it, it was strange because, you know, I say Hendrix, sort of woke me up musically. I'd been playing since I was 14. And um, I was a guitarist to begin with. Everybody was, you know, we all wanted to be the lead guitarist and, uh, you know, the school band and all that stuff. Um, and then I was offered a job in a soul band that was doing the, the German US Air Force bases. And um, they needed a bass player. So I said, oh yeah, I'm a bass player. I lied through my teeth. 
swapped my guitar for for um, the bass player's bass in the school band, and um, three weeks later, the band that was going to go to Germany and do the Air Force bases broke up, <laughs> which was my first education in band. And um, but I will say, you know, as I the bass up, it was like, oh, I understand this completely already. Right. And it was was it was a, a crystallizing moment. Yes, and, and did what I should do really. Yeah, and did you have a slightly similar experience to dear old Lemmy, who had been in the Rock and Vickers and was playing guitar, and then kind of found himself suddenly, you know, sort of, you know, he picked up the bass player from the, the bass guitar from the guy who didn't turn up to rehearsals and basically got the gig. Did you have a similar? Um, actually, Jimi Hendrix bass player also started as a sort of rhythm guitarist, didn't he, and then went on to the bass. <laughs> Is that is that sort of did that help with your kind of musical education in years later? What having started on guitar? Yes. Um, kind of. Um, yeah. In the, it gave you gave me a sort of understanding of the scales and the majors and minors and all that sort of thing, the technical side of it. But feel wise, I just uh, I just. It just flew out of my fingers, really, as soon as I started playing bass, you know. Yeah. And then I was very fortunate in that um, I was I was offered a job. As a, I was playing with a three-piece band. Everybody was trying to be cream at the time. Um, and um, this guy who had a residency um, on, on Friday and Saturday nights in the pub just over the road from where we were rehearsing heard me playing and their bass player had just left and he just said, well, you fancy the gig? And I took it and I stayed there for two years and, and, and the guy, the leader, a guy called Jasper, was one of those musical geniuses, you know, he could play absolutely everything. He could get a tune out of a saxophone. He was a brilliant rock guitarist. He could play classical guitar. He could play boogie-woogie jazz piano. He could play church organ, which he did for his local Paris church. He was just amazing. Could make me look silly on a bass. But he he was the one who really sort of educated me. That was my apprenticeship. You know, We, we played for five hours a night on Friday and Saturday night. And, right. Uh, yeah. And what happened to Jasper? Jasper is now a fellow of the Royal College of Music. Wow, he's done it, hasn't he? Really? <laughs> he, he? Yeah, he was an absolute genius. Really, really a proper musician, unlike all of us bogus ones. Yes, absolutely. And then just as the sort of 70s progressed, and because and, um, I'd spoken to quite a few people who'd been in that kind of 60s scene, like Barry Miles, who did the International Times and various kind of art galleries and had been involved with the 14-hour Technicolor Dreamer Ali Pali. I mean, by the sort of the, the turn of that decade, I remember asking him why, you know, why he sort of wasn't around in the 70s. And he said, well, actually, we were just all really tired and had got burnt out and, and we just weren't able to keep it going. So did you feel when the 70s appeared, did you feel like the baton had been passed to you, not you personally, but, you know, the, the sort of the scene had changed quite a bit. The ones who were teenagers in the 60s, yeah. Yeah, I definitely felt that. 
Yes. Uh, you know, it was kind of um, uh, my career in inverted commas didn't really get started till I was, yeah, 17. So that was like 69. And um, yeah, so when I, I hit the 70s, well, yeah, it's a long story, but by 1975, after a lot of strange and peculiar experiences, I, I met up with Ira now, and um, I've been there ever since. Yes, but as, as I kind of, as I slightly mentioned at the beginning, my, my love of David Bowie had started in that very early period of the 70s. I mean, he spent most of his 60s kind of in various little combos going nowhere fast. Did you, you know, and, and you know, the Beatles had done that period in Hamburg. Did you have that period for your, for your own development in the early 70s, from 70 to 1975, of sort of finding finding your path in life, so to speak? Yes, it was. That was exactly what was happening. Exactly what was happening. Uh, yeah, I went through a lot of very strange experiences, met some very very helpful people i'm a lucky guy on that level yeah i met some very very good people who sort of well they should they didn't tell me so much to show me <laughs> and um yeah what i saw was what kind of then motivated and drove me and still does now yes so were you were you playing much music in that early period of the the 70s Early 70s, no, I was in London. I'd moved up to London. Uh, I moved up in, in early 1970. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't know anybody from Adam, you know, so I was kind of, I was just feeling my way into a whole new scene. And, um, yeah, so I, I didn't know anyone to play with. Uh, and I didn't actually start, really restart playing until about 73, 74, and then, yeah, some quite odd things happened then. Yes, serendipity, the planets lined up. Did you, did you, still, yeah. have, did you still have your bass guitar at that stage? I just wondered who... Yeah, actually, the first one I had was, was a, a Vox Clubman, and, and it was awful. It was like a cricket bat with strings had black nylon strings but um i i i managed somehow to uh, to get a really excellent um bass 1963 fender precision and um yeah that stayed with me right until it was stolen in den haag in 1979 <laughs> That is annoying, isn't it? Did you, um, at that stage, because being from East Anglia, there was kind of during the early 70s, I think it was like 71 onwards for most years, there was the birth of the kind of the fairs and festivals like the Albion fairs and the Barsham fairs. And there was a huge movement sort of like people getting back to the land or certainly living in sort of community and communes. There was a band called the Global Village Trucking Company who all lived in a house together just outside Dis in Suffolk. And then there was like the self-sufficiency movement with people like, I think, is it John Seabrook and um, people, you know, who were writing books about living off the land and sort of being one with nature. Did that, did any of that sort of creep into your aura or consciousness? Yes, it did. Yeah, um, very much so. In so far as as, as um, 
it was it was present in the culture at that time. It was in the air, and a lot of people tuned into it. And yes, it, you know, it was uh, it was uh, definitely influential. Yes, and then and then how did the band? How did you start to uh, bring your here and now together? Well, I didn't bring it together. In the, uh, what had happened, um, the sort of story of here and now, is that there was a, there was an original lineup in 1974, I think 73, 74, um, and the only which broke up, and the only person who sort of well, there were two of them carried the torch forward, and that was Keith Hughes, the drummer, and um, Twink, who was the synthesizer player, and. Uh, Twink met me on the way down to Stonehenge, the very first Stonehenge festival, which was in um, 75, I think, yeah. And um, it was it was totally different from what it became. It was very, very small. There were only about five, 600 people there. <coughs> and, um, yeah, he met me there and, and, and then introduced me to Keith Keith, who was also there. And we decided that there was a there was a big festival being organised by um, what was his name? Uh, I forgot his name. Anyway, I'm terrible with names. Um, it was Watchfield Free Festival, which um, the guy who was organising it had had got a grant from the government, and they'd given him um, an old disused RAF airfield to put it on. It was a very experimental thing. Sid Rawls. Yes, dear old Sid Rawls, that's it, yes. And um, so we we got together and started, and, you know, we never rehearsed. And here and now was was really, you know, in the early days, we never did rehearse. It was just totally absolute everything from start to finish, every set we played. But slowly it evolved. Anyway, we, we played at Watchfield with, with uh, a couple of guitarists who, um, well, cut a long story short, we, we met Steffi Sharpstrings, who became the Here and Now guitarist, um, on, the after, on the Sunday afternoon of the last day and I asked him if he'd like to come and jam with us. And he said, yeah. And uh, within five minutes of his coming on the other two guitarists just melted away <laughs> they just sort of quietly left um, here and now was born and that night um, Arthur Brown came on and jammed with us for an hour Stevie Winwood was standing at the side of the stage well I say standing he was leaning on something he was quite uh, quite inebriated I think yes. and um, Reebok who was, who was his percussionist came on and, and played with us for like five hours. So it was a very star-crossed meeting and, and, you know, we just knew that this was a band we could continue and we did. Yes. And did it feel like you were on a mission at that stage to um, bring... Yeah. Yes. Because I, I guess kind of musically there'd been that kind of glam period and then... People like, I don't know, Black Sabbath had released that first album and then we had those kind of other bands like Led, <laughs> Led Zeppelin happening. 
as an no, obviously mentioned things like uh, yeah the glam rock world of Sweden Slade. But then I guess there was the the kind of the the the, um, the festival movement that had started. Like there was the sort of small folky ones like Albion and Barsham. But then there was the kind of the Windsor Free Festival, and then there was kind of larger kind of yeah, like you mentioned Stonehenge as well that started to grow. So the alternative movement started to really shift into gear during mid seventies. You know, didn't it? Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. It was it was amazing how it just mushroomed. And, um, yeah, we were very much a part of that, you know. And it's funny, you know, you, you, you were talking about the, the sort of musical influences around at the time. And, and uh, you know, we had all been influenced by Gong. Um, and I think that was probably the strongest inf- common influence that we shared. But we also brought in our own elements. Um, I was very much into the likes of Jeff Beck, um, The Who, uh, because of John Entwistle, not for any other reason, really. He was just, he was my god yes. as a bass. Um, and and um, Steffi was very much into the Genesis sort of prog side of things. Um, Keith, Keith was, was into... He liked Jeff Beck as well, um, but he also liked um, kind of, I would call it syncopated music, you know, where you're hitting a lot of offbeats. And, and so he was very into that. And so was I. And, and he and I, you know, as, as a rhythm section, just clicked. It was amazing. Yes. Really, really. And how was it, you know, because there was also that kind of the rise, slow rise of, I suppose we'd had sort of people like Dr. Feelgood appeared and then after that people like the Doctors of Madness with Richard Strange and the kind of the the kind of birth of punk. Did you start to sort of feel there had been kind of a new musical kind of, um, I don't know, a new musical genre appearing? We were absolutely a part of that. We didn't know what we were at the time, but what we really were was we were psychedelic punks. Is exactly what we were. And we went off, it's funny, we went off to France in, in um, 1976 and we just did a sort of an ad-lib tour. We just set, we found, we'd find a town, find a cafe that was full of freaks, ask them if they knew of any venues around, and, and they usually did, and, and we would just put on a gig like a week later. And um, we just toured around France. That lasted for three months. And we ended up playing places like um, the Théâtre Paris-Nord, you know, which is like a 2,000-seater place. Um, and we did a, a Radio France live broadcast, all sorts of stuff, you know. Crazy stuff happened. And then shortly after that, David got to hear about us. David Allen, the erstwhile leader of Gong, he'd left Gong by then. Yes. And he wanted to put together a space punk project. And Mike Howlett, the bass player of the original Gong, had heard us, been to see us, in fact, and said, I told him, I know exactly the band for you. And so Planet Gong was born. Yes. And at that stage... When did you start sort of thinking, right, we're going to have to go into the studio one day and make an album and actually sort of get the track sorted out? Because was the first album, was that sort of give and take on Charlie Records? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, what happened, you know, um, David 
did a deal with um, Charlie Records for the, the Planet Gong album, Live Float and Anarchy 77. Uh, he did the deal before we actually even toured it. Um, so we had met up with Charlie, obviously, and, and I had to sign the publishing for everything that uh, David hadn't written, which was quite a lot on the album. And um, they said, well, would you, as here and now, like to do an album with us, you know? offered us so obviously we said yes yes um, but by then you know i mean i think doing the french tour that you know being out for three months that was what really sort of tightened us up completely and got us writing material so that we had enough material for an album yeah because john because john peel picked up on the band didn't he you did did you do loved us, yeah. you did well we the fun thing is he met us um, he and I got on like a house on fire. I have no idea why, but we did. And um, he came to one of our gigs at Westbourne Park, um, which was a, a free gig. Um, it was an old, well, it was still a, a skater's uh, place. <laughs> but there was, a, there was a sort of natural arena at one end of it. So, we, yeah, we used to set up a stage there and, and, and put on a, a, a gig. And um, we were doing, we'd had a lot to do with ATV. And John Peel was, was making a program about um, the indie record labels that were springing up. And he wanted to do something with um, Mark Perry from ATV. But Mark Perry was late. Anyway, we invited him onto our tour bus and made him a cup of tea. And he, he just settled in like he'd lived there all his life, you know. Um, really liked us, and then a couple of weeks later, offered us a, a slot on on his. Uh, he used to do a Tuesday night uh, live session. Yes, which wasn't actually. It was recorded in the afternoon, but. Um, yeah, that's right. Because you did. Um, this is kind of at the towards the tail end of nineteen seventy-eight, wasn't it? It was broadcast, which yeah. which has about is it four five songs this time. What you see is what you are. Oh my God, can we be so hard? And um, chicken marimba. So there you go. There you. Go. So were you at that stage? How did songwriting start to develop for you? Because obviously it's it's quite a jump from being in a band doing cover versions or doing sort of space jam numbers to actually thinking right, we're going to have to have something a bit more structured here. We didn't. We never actually said that. Uh, it just evolved naturally, you know, stuff. Because, you know, you do a jam during a set and it works and everything, and so you develop that into a piece uh, and structure it. But it wasn't, you know, for any particular purpose. We, we were kind of, um, I think everybody was at that time. We were just sort of, it's like running down a hill, you know that feeling you get when you're running down a hill that you suddenly lose control of your body but your body knows exactly what to do and you start laughing yes. madly. You know that feeling. Absolutely. That's how, That's how it felt, you know. So we were just sort of running down that hill and whatever came our way was whatever came our way, you know. Absolutely. And a lot of things yeah. So when you when you went into the what studio did you go to for um, the first album, Give and Take? 
studios, uh, Soul, Soul Studios in North Wales, a guy called Dave Anderson who played with Hawk. He played originally with Alan Duell. Right. And, um, and then Hawk Wind and, and uh, he played with the Groundhogs for quite a while as well. He's, a, he's an old friend of mine. Well, he, we met then, in fact, but uh, yeah, that yes. was 77 mates ever since. And, and, and he also produced the album as well. Uh, no, no, no. We produced it. It was, it was sort of, well, it was a joint effort, basically. Yes. Yeah. And how did you then sort of, because with because any band, it has that kind of interesting moment where, you know, you get the first album out. Because I you know, haven't done this show for quite a long time. Most bands have this great narrative, you know, the five-year narrative. You know, the first 12 months, it's kind of a honeymoon phase where things are going quite well and you're playing lots of stuff, you know, lots of gigs, get a single out. And, you know, and I don't know, I suppose with a lot of the 80s bands that I'm, I've been kind of obsessed with, you know, they would get a John Peel play and then a John Peel session. I know this isn't quite the same narrative, but then, you know, the first album, things going well, tour the country. And then it's that kind of, right, now what do we do? Because it's, it's kind of like the dynamic of the band and then thinking of the next album. So what was that process like as, you know, we were coming to the end of the decade? Well... Uh, basically, we, between sort of 1977 and 1980, we toured almost nonstop. It was, uh, it, we, we weren't just playing England, we were playing all over Europe, you know, and, and um, there was a whole philosophy that was, Keith Keith was absolutely insistent on, which was that the tours were all free, admission was free, and we used to take a collection. And to begin with, that worked really well. In fact, we probably got more than we would have if we'd done it, you know, sort of commercially. It was yes. amazing. People got it and, and sort of contributed to it. Uh, and then that started falling off. And, and I think it was around 1979, we did uh, Central London Poly, and there were 1,400 people there. And we did a collection, we got 40 quid. <laughs> So I kind of thought, okay, that's it. That's the end of the story, really. End of that story. Yeah. And there had been a few other sort of subterranean uh, rumblings, you know, to do with record deals and offers and all sorts of things. Um, and Keith Keith left. He decided to leave. Um and we got in a new drummer, Rob Bougie. Everyone else stayed. And, um, yeah, then we did the second album, which was uh, all over the show. We'd done a deal with Charlie to produce two albums. Fortunately, it was only two, because that guy robbed us blind. I've never had a penny for anything. We did. With That's always a that's always a bit crap, isn't it? I mean, did um, yes, that is always a tricky one. And and seventy nine, it's kind of a it's kind of a bit of an ominous year because because politically the seventies was all over the place, and we'd had sort of endless prime ministers, and also you know the three day week, you know the minor, you know like the IRA issues and stuff like that. But seventy nine, you know, Th Thatcher gets into power, and then the eighties drift in, and things start to turn quite sort of spiky. You know, there's the Falkland War, then we. Had had Green and Common 
uh, the miners' strike, and um, and then sort of uh, I suppose that rise of sort of going towards the Battle of the Beanfield. So what was the, was what was it like, sort of having done the second album and then sort of coming into the eighties for the band and yourself? Well, for us, it was actually our sort of most successful time. It was quite amazing. We were touring all over Europe, filling thousand seaters. We were no longer doing um, free gigs because, uh, as I say, you know, most of us thought that after the central London poly fiasco, everyone, apart from Keithley, thought that, yeah, that's enough. <laughs> um, so we were we were sort of touring on, on a commercial basis and, and actually, you know, agents and managers were queuing up to grab us. And, and uh, although we, we, we had nothing but negative press, the enemy hated us absolutely because they thought we were old hippies, you know, and, and um, even though we'd met a couple of them and they knew we weren't, they we were their target, you know. And um, but despite all that, you know, we we were constantly being offered record deals and and uh, agency deals and this that and the other and management and all that sort of stuff. I and mean, we decided really that. At the same time as all that was going on, we we got hold of a, a place uh, out just outside London, uh, a place called Ivor, um, and we got it through a short life housing group who were given all these properties that the M25 was going to go through, and this place was a millionaire's house, and, and it had like sort of a half an acre of ground, and it had an outhouse the size of a bungalow that was just one big room perfect studio, rehearsal studio, and recording a bit. We did a bit of recording there, but didn't really do a lot. Yeah. Uh, but it was the base from which we were operating, and, and it was something that we really needed, you know. And, um, yeah, so that sort of fell into place, and so we decided that we would use that to set up basically our little commune. You know, we had about 15, 16 people involved. We were making our own T-shirts, posters, uh, cassettes. Cassettes were the thing then. Do you remember that? Oh, God, <laughs> yes. I, I've, I've still got a drawer or, or kind of small cupboard of cassettes in my, you know, upstairs. Unfortunately, they're all unmarked and they've just got... There's a lot of John Peel shows, actually, and I don't want to throw them out, but I have got a fondness mm. for those cassettes, you know, and think there must be... So much good stuff on there. Yeah, so, and the cassette is actually making a comeback, bizarrely. So, but yeah, I mean, going to fairs and festivals, there was always people with lots of cassettes and lots of live, yeah, yeah lots of live recordings and stuff like that, wasn't there? Bootlegs and all that kind of malarkey. Yeah. It was... It was very exciting. Yeah, because, you know, obviously the world of CDs had was just a fantasy, really, wasn't it? it probably not even a thought, yes. <laughs> it wasn't, no, no. Cassettes were the absolute pinnacle of our human achievement. Yes, absolutely. So was, your, was the next album that you brought out then called Stolen Moments? No, no, we did one before that, which was called Off the Cuff. That was our first cassette release. Um, and that came out, I think, early 80, something like that. Yes. Then we did some moments. And then um, we, uh, yeah, there's another very long story. Um, but we, we got to record um, Fantasy Shift in, uh, in a 16-track studio. 
near where we were living. Yes. And this is on a... Because those... The previous one was on the rather sort of sweet little record label called Fuck Off Records, which was probably, yeah. which was your own. But the but Fantasy Fantasy Shift is recorded on with uh, Chick Records. What Hewitt Chick Records? Yeah. Well, that was that was this guy. He um, Tony Holly was his name, and and he was. Um, he was a sleazy old sax player who played in the 60s in all those sort of dancehall bands. And um, I don't know how, but somehow he did, uh, I think he did some very dodgy deals. He was that sort of person. But he ended up with a nightclub and, and, um, and a studio attached to the nightclub. And we played his nightclub and absolutely round it. And, and he said afterwards, that's the first time I've ever seen this place full. And... Um, only held about 600, so it was no big deal, really, as far as we were concerned. But um, he said, well, look, I, I'm, I'm building this new studio here, and uh, I'd like to sort of use a band to, to iron out all the, the teething troubles. So would you like to come in and, and, you know, record some stuff? And we said, well, we're just about ready to do an album. And lo uh, and behold, it all happened, and... and uh, there was a guy who was who was sort of hovering around trying to be our manager without much success, but he was in touch with a chap called Trevor Evan Jones, who was um, a producer, a record producer. He'd worked with Jeff Beck and um, the Moody Blues and a few other people. Proper, you know, music producer. Yes. And um, so, yeah, we got... We got in touch with him. He heard the stuff, loved it, said, right, okay, let's do it. And we went, we ended up spending three months in, in this studio, basically, because there were so many technical teething problems that uh, they had. Um, yeah, yeah, it took us a long time to record it. But that also gave us, you know, the opportunity to get it really the way we wanted it. Which didn't really happen. I mean, uh, you know, Trevor Evan Jones insisted on doing the final mix on his own. He didn't want the band in. And yes. we respected that. And I, I wasn't that happy with the mix he did. But nonetheless, it's what it is. And, uh, yeah, not a bad album. Yeah, yes, it's all good. So after that, there was, there was, I mean, obviously there's this whole movement that started to kick off in the 80s. Because, again, the other thing that... I noticed with a lot of the bands and from memory that there was huge amounts of unemployment. So job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes, you know, anything to try and coax or at least um, massage the unemployment figures. So there was a lot of bands that kicked off or started at that point because, you know, let's face it, there wasn't that much else to do sometimes in the early 80s. And um, yes, and the anarcho punk scene started, you know, obviously they've been crass, but then there was all the other bands that started to to sort of develop and the squat movement as well. So did you find that as the 80s progressed that you were looked upon as the sort of elder statesmen and women of, of a sort of a, a particular movement? To a certain extent, yes. Yeah, we did. It was, it was funny, you know, it happened really quickly, fast and because we were still like really busy doing our own thing. What we did do was was kind of pick out bands that we uh, that we liked and and took them out on tour with us 
Um, we gave the Cardiacs their first ever UK tour, supporting us. Do you remember them? The yes, the Cardiacs. Yes. Well, Tim was a, a really good friend. God rest his soul. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, he eventually persuaded me to come down and see them. They were playing at some grotty little um, youth club in, in Kingston, just outside London. And um, I went down and was completely blown away by them. And, and yeah, I said, would you like to come out on the next tour with us as a support? Which they did and never looked back, you know, I'm glad to say, because that, that was a brilliant story, the cardiac. Yeah, absolutely. That was, was that, was that Tim, was that Tim Smith? Yeah. There yeah, that was Tim Smith. I know. We gave the fall, their first UK gigs. We took the mob out. Do you remember the mob? Oh, yes. Is that? Yeah, the mob. Blimey. And I guess, I mean, after that, you you know, those, you know, people like Blythe Power, I probably mentioned them, Chumbawamba, and um, and the Liber is it the Liberators. Now they were a Norwich reggae band. You'd have never heard the the Rhythmonites. Rhythmonites. You know, there was a whole there was a whole movement on the festivals and and uh, scene, wasn't there? Osric Tentacles were another band. Yes, I remember them well. I remember they often played the art centre. So as the eighties progressed, you went. You went after after Fantasy Shift. Then you did. Was it coaxed coaxed out of Oxford and then theatre and been and gone? So that, during that period, the eighties, you were recording. You must have been feeling like you were working this band twenty four seven. And and I know from again, you know, with most bands, they do have that intensity. How was how were you sort of coping with the amount of pressure and demands that were being put on you at that stage? Oh, same way as everybody does, taking lots of drugs. <laughs> no, it was kind of, you know, I, because you're inside the bubble and, and you have sort of experienced everything that leads up to that, uh, it was, it, you just took it in your stride, you know. It wasn't really a problem. I, I never felt... I always felt, yeah, there was the pressure to sort of maintain momentum, but that was all, really. And that was about the music as much as anything, you know. And I was writing a, a whole... I was quite prolific at that time, writing lots and lots of songs. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it wasn't... I never, I never really felt pressurised by external forces. It was only internal. I was a driven man. <laughs> Someone has to be driven, don't they, and take the baton. How did it work kind of diplomatically with the band? Because I know a few people were trying to have kind of like, let's all have equal voting, let's try and all sit down and discuss it, and let's all come to a, a common consensus, and then we'll move on. And then, you know, 20 years later, think, I can't do this anymore. It's my band. I make the decisions. Can we just, you know, I've become a dictator by mistake, but <laughs> I can understand why. Let's just kind of, you know, I write the material. I, you know, I should have more than money. I know that sounds terrible, doesn't it? But, you know, most people get to that point where they feel like they've done all the work. And, yes, yeah, so it's it's often a bit tricky at times. How did how did that sort of kind of work with you and, and here and now? Well, we were all, up until just before we broke up, we were all living at uh, this place in Ivor. Um 
and everything we got just went into the sort of the pot, basically, um, which you know kept us alive, paid the rent, bought food, paid for journeys to the pub up the road. <laughs> And what have you, um, and nobody really sort of, there was, I never felt I should get more because I'm doing this, 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 and this. It wasn't like that. It was, it was a totally group effort. Um, I suppose the decisions were usually Gavin De Blitz, the keyboard player who replaced Twink. Um, he and I were sort of the, the two pole pieces within the band. Um, we probably took most of the decisions. We set up the tours and decided when we were going to work and what we were going to do and blah, blah, you know, that sort of side of things. Um, kept the business side of it together, in other words. Yes. And did you find, you know, during... Because um, I have to confess, I was really obsessed with indie pop in the 80s. But there was like towards 87, 88 time, 87, yeah... I mean, ecstasy comes along and then there's that kind of whole dance rave movement and bands like the Happy Mondays, Primal Scream, Stone Roses. Then the orb appears. And then after that, you, you get a whole load of people like the Travel, um, the Levelers and Sensor and, um, yeah, the kind of the festival movement really kicks off again after the Battle of the Beanfield, which was the sort of mid-80s where you felt like everything is going to finish, but then... With anything, it's kind of new growth and new optimism. And the eight, the nineties suddenly have huge amounts of festivals, and now it's gone completely. What it had done until COVID, gone completely bonkers. So, did you find yourselves during the late eighties, kind of in a in a kind of an interesting phase of the band because of seeing, you know, how people really wanted to um, take ecstasy and dance? <laughs> yeah. Um... There was some of that. There was some of that. And, it, of course, you know, I mean, whatever's in the air, you know, the thing about here and now is is that we have never stuck to any given musical form. You know, we're not punk, we're not rock, we're not jazz, we're not, you know, we are all those things Whenever we, in whatever mix we feel like doing. Whatever works, really. And a lot of our material is quite dancey anyway. So, um yeah, it was, I mean, it, I enjoyed that time. I really did. You know, there were some great things happened, you know, really, really good event. But, um, yeah. Yes. It was, it, it, yeah. We well, kind of slotted in somewhere in, in an alternative sort of psychedelic way. There's always been the element of psychedelia in here and now, and I think that's what kind of keeps it alive and fresh because there is that and then there are sort of a multitude of musical styles we've never felt restricted to any one genre yes and what was your because when you recorded that was kind of the mid early 90s is it uf oasis what was that experience like because this was recorded at uh, green greenhouse studios in london yeah that was great and that was um, and recorded between the full moons of June and July, nineteen ninety-three. That's correct. <laughs> I know. Was this a particular? What What was the sort of? Um, I mean, was there quite a build-up to putting this album together? Um, well, we had the material for sure, and and um, I had actually 
approached a couple of labels to see if they were interested. And they made interested noises. Um, but eventually we decided, you know, that we didn't really want to do it that way. We wanted to uh, release it independently. It would be our first CD release as such, you know, and we thought, yeah, this is, this is a new direction, it's a new thing, and we wanted to see if we could do it. And um, Coats Out from Oxford was financed, uh, was, yeah, financed by a guy called Gudge. And he, it's funny, uh, things like this synchronicity works, you know, when you're doing, when you're working in the right direction, I think stuff like that happens as it should. He approached us and said, look, I've just got this amazing deal. I can get you two weeks in the greenhouse, you know, um, and I'll pay for that. Don't worry about that side of it. And you just go in and record. So that's what we did, you know. It was great. While we were, um, Joe was in the studio below us while we were there. So we, we all, they had uh, lovely, brought in catering from proper chefs. So everybody would get together about seven every evening and have, have this beautiful dinner. My God, and, that's, um, that's so civilised, isn't it? It's <laughs> amazing. I loved it. Yeah, and, could... uh, yeah, I got to meet him there and, and a few other nice chaps. You know, it, was, it was great. I really enjoyed recording that. Yes. So when you came to doing, at the end of the millennium, um, Gospel of Free, I mean, this is another, it's quite an enormous album, isn't it? And a big kind of lineup of um, personnel. Yeah, that was that was released by Keith Keith um, on his label, which I don't Name escapes me, I forget. But Keith, he's the original drummer, you know, had had been putting stuff. He he was the one who set up Fuck Off Records. In fact, it wasn't um, wasn't here or nothing. Yes. Um, yeah. So he released that one. But that's that's basically improvisation, all jams, the whole thing. Yeah. And when does, I mean, when does, what's the sort of narrative of the band after sort of, you know, 2000? What, what's the journey for you guys after that? Well, Steffi had rejoined the band in, in the early 90s and, and uh, the original guitarist, because he'd left and, and we'd had uh, another guitarist, Dino Ferrari, was with us. For most of the 80s um but steffi came back in the 90s and for a while there were the two but steffi sort of managed to elbow dino out poor old dino and um <clears throat> uh we had we had steve cassidy in on drums and um gavin the blitz left uh, he left in in sort of mid nineties, I think, and um, Andy Royd replaced him. So we had we had what was basically a sort of half new and half old band. Steffi and I knew each other, you know, from from the original days of Vera Now, and and Steve and Andy were sort of basically fairly new. Um, and that we we were still touring quite a lot in those days, gigging a lot. And um, 
Steffi, yeah, he, uh, it was difficult. I don't want to sort of say any bad things, but um, let's just say he'd taken a bit too much LSD in his earlier years. And um, yes. he was a bit, he, and so eventually we parted company, he and I. Um, and then I sort of underwent, uh, well, it was started off by a horrible kidney complaint that I developed and then um, which put me in hospital for a, a month or so and that gave me time to think about what I wanted to do. I'd been running an agency as well throughout the 90s um, and playing and booking out uh, Gong. I was playing for them as well. So uh, and all that had come to an end in, in 2000 and I just kind of thought okay, what I really want to do is just play music with people that I get on well with. And, and uh, so I started casting around and um, put a new band together, basically. Uh, oh, I feel a new band. You know, I mean, it was all people who knew the material and loved it and were sort of involved with it emotionally in one way or another. So it was it kind of worked, you know. Yes. And um, we've had a few we've had a few lineup changes since then. Um but the lineup that as it stands now it's probably the best I've had since two thousand. It's really, really cooking. Yes. So did you record with that new lineup? Was that the album you did Wild and Free? No, no, that's another key key recording. Uh, and, and it's that's that again is a compilation of of um, wild and free was for who's the blues who uh, who died the year it was done and it was recorded actually yeah it was recorded at a funeral right my god that must have been a horrendous shock well, it was it was yeah. You don't get. It was sorry, but it happens to all of us sooner or later, doesn't it? It it does. You you just kind of you know a bit like Lemmy. You want to keep dodging it. You don't want to go. You know you can be kind of blasé'd about these things or blasé when you're um, younger, but when you get a bit older, you think, oh, actually, and you start going to doctors. You when you start going to hospitals or doctors' appointments and having scans, you kind of want to. You want good news, really. You don't suddenly want to go. By the way, it's not so good. So um, things change a bit, really, don't they? Attitude-wise. Oh, what was the process? Yes. So, did you have you still? Are you still recording new material? Well, funnily enough, you know, we're halfway through an album. um, In the midst of which, um, a whole personnel change happened. Yes, guitar on the left, and uh, and uh, we now have. I now I'm now working with Steve Cassidy again, who was with us for twelve, fourteen years in the nineties, um, and um, Mark Robson on keyboards, and um, Tom Ashurst, who's a, an absolutely brilliant young guitarist, very young, but really, really clued in. Um, and we're, I'm just at the moment casting around. I'm thinking of going, funnily enough, back to Fold Studios, to Dave Anderson's place, 
to finish off the recording. We've basically, we've done most of the keyboards, a lot of the vocals, all the bass. We just want to put the new drums and guitars down, but we'll have to probably do it all together anyway. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll be doing that either at the end of this month or um, sometime in February, depending on what's possible. Yes. Blimey, have you got a title for the album? There's two working titles going on at the moment, and it's a battle between one of one is Let Go, and the other is Cloud Surfing, which was uh, it's one of the tracks, but they're both tracks on the album, yes. the potential album. Um, Cloud Surfing was uh, I saw this thing on on um, Channel Four. They used to do little five minute fillers, and uh, it was about these lunatic. Australian glider pilots um, over on the west coast of, of, of Australia. There's a, there's a, every now and then you get this huge lenticular crowd comes in off, off the Pacific, and um, it has it carries with it a, a really powerful downdraft of cold air. But what these guys do is they get towed up onto the top of the cloud and then they just tip over the edge yeah. and they'll hit. Th- miles an hour in a glider going straight down following and uh it's crazy you know and the guy who was doing the interview said uh isn't it really hard to pull out of a dive like that in a glider and uh this guy who was a pilot said well some of them don't mate crazy thing to do so i wrote this song cloud surfing about that yes what well, it's going to be done. And I kind of love the idea. Yeah, it does have that that the sort of vibe of um, all gone energy that we used to love back in the 80s, didn't we? Wilhelm Reich and, um, I don't know, reminds me of that kind of vibe, really. So, um, yeah, interesting. Clouds, it's got to be done. And do you, I mean, with your, you know, the last 10 years, you know, you've released quite a lot of albums, haven't you? Are these mostly kind of live material and sort of old recordings and just going through the archives? Yeah, well, some of them are, and some of them are, uh, you know, brand new, fresh material ones. This one is is a mixture of of both. I think I'm going to resurrect a couple of tunes from way back that never actually got recorded or released properly. Um, But most of it is is new material. Yes. so what is the what is the lineup now? God, I kind of slightly missed that. Sorry, sorry, I wasn't kind of making notes. Okay, we've got Keith Cassidy on drums, who was with us back in the nineties. Um, we've got Mark Wilson, who's the, who he's his band is is actually um, Kangaroo Moon, uh, who are a sort of folk rocky kind of outfit. Yes. Um, He's he's keyboards and vocals. Um, Tom Ashurst, who was the bass player for Hawk Lords, but yep. um, he loves his guitar. He's a very talented guy. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, Self on bass and vocals. And will you be trying to come out and do any live dates in the summer or in the autumn? 
Well, the first gigs we've got lined up so far for next year are we're doing um, Hebden Bridge Trades Club, that's in West Yorkshire, um, on the 1st of April. And we're doing a, a sort of an open birthday party in Wigan on the 2nd of April. And then we're doing uh, Tanner Fest, which is, I think is in July. I'm not sure. Oh, yes. And when you cast your mind back, you know, because everyone has those kind of festy moments where they kind of remember certain crazy festivals. Was there any particular ones that you can remember for both possibly good reasons and like, blimey, that was absolutely extraordinary. We got out of there alive, almost like your Altamont, but not quite Altamont. Well, yeah, there is one of those. There's one of those, definitely. That was uh, Marianenplatz Festival in Berlin. Uh, this was in the noughties, I think, sometime in the noughties. And it was a Planet Gong gig. David used to occasionally do a Planet Gong gig when he felt like it. And we were offered this to do to headline uh, the Marianenplatz Festival. Marianenplatz Festival was the one that used to take place when the wall was up, it was right up against the wall. Yes. Um, and when it came down, of course, and and uh, that year when we did it, we'd flown in the day before and, and driven 400 miles down to do a sort of warm-up gig somewhere in southern Germany and then had to drive 400 miles all the way back and then there was no sleep and do this, the uh, Marianne Platz. And um, it was crazy because of, you know, the wall, had, it was the year after the wall had come down. And so a lot of East Berliners flocked over because they'd heard it, you know, in all the years that the wall was up, they'd heard this festival going on, you know, and they were blast, you know, so, and there were 150,000 people there. And totally out of control and the cops were sort of panicking and, about half an hour before we were due to go on, this this uh, he looked like a general. You know, he had pips all over him. Huge, very imposing German police officer with his cohorts behind him. You know, came into the dressing room and said, uh, I, "I have to tell you, you must stop at eight o'clock exactly." Because, you know, there is a curfew and we have to control this crowd. It's, it's out of hand, you know. So you must finish at eight o'clock exactly. And um, we did. We did a very professional set. We played for an hour and a half, blam, finished at two minutes to eight. So that was fine, you know. But the crowds weren't having it. They just went boom, work. And it was... <laughs> absolute mayhem, you know, 150,000 people, just, you know, the cops, eventually the, the same cop came in after, this was after about 20 minutes and he said, you will please go on and play one more piece, but make it a soothing, peaceful piece. <laughs> <laughs> God. So we did. <laughs> that's a that great, crazy. That must have been amazing. I mean, I know there's some that I've noticed quite a lot of people doing at the moment. I mean, have you managed to sort of archive, you know, all your work, not just recordings, but, you know, posters, lyric sheets, basically what I'm saying. Have, have you thought of writing a book? That's the thing. 
I have thought about writing a book, but I've, I've always had this sort of superstitious feeling that if I do, that I will kill it. Kill the story, and I don't want it to end just yet. Yes, I know. It's uh, I know it's kind of we all have those kind of weird thoughts, don't we? And it's like I don't want to do it quite yet. It's not quite right. But then, but have you sort of secretively put things in cardboard boxes and just put them to one side, thinking, yeah, definitely. No, no, I, I have never kept anything, and that's that's a great regret. I have got some scrapbooks from the very early days, from the late seventies, but that's all really. I've got a few records but not many I, I i just can't sort of hang on to anything I, I i'm not a collector and i don't do that sort of thing yeah. i wish somebody around had i know i just, just do well it's kind of an... you're not thinking about you know saving what you've just done it's it's like yeah let's do this Yes, and also, I mean, you just you kind of wish someone was around filming it all, and then could write, do a lovely little documentary and put it on BBC Four on a Friday night, or or Sky Arts. There have been a couple of people who've, who've offered that. God, I wish they would get on and do it. That would just make my life so much better. Never mind. One day, someone will. Anyway, look, have you? Um, yes, if you could have said something like you know, words of wisdom to your, I don't know. 16, 17, possibly 18-year-old self, you know, what, what would you have kind of whispered in their ear as they embarked on this fantastic journey? Oh. Go for it, son. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Go for it. Don't hold back. Just do it. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, really, really. Who knows, you know, I mean, we all learn a huge number of lessons. One thing I do say to, you know, I've had quite a lot of young musicians starting out, coming and sort of asking me this, that and the other. And the one thing I do tell them is, is what you need is a reason, a reason why you're doing it. And I can't tell you what that reason is. You have to find that reason inside yourself. Yes. And then it's one. And you'll know when you find it. And that's that's about the best advice I can offer, you know, really. Yes. Find your reason first, then do it. And then take it from there. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be done, hasn't it, really? But, um, yeah, well, look, this has been... Keith, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. Well, thank you. And, um, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and when I do it, I'll um, I can send you the link. And um, the quality was fine, actually. There was not too many moments where it sort of becomes a bit too difficult to hear. So um, yeah, sorry, I don't know what happened about the moot business on on Zoom, but um, never mind. It's it's good to do it. And um, yeah, thanks for your time. And look, all the best for the album. Really looking forward to hearing it. And um, yeah, I'll keep in touch. But I'll send you the link when it's done. Is that okay? Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Okay, look, take care and have a great year. Thank you. Okay, I want to hit, hit, hit finish now. See you later. Bye. <laughs>